Story One of Dubliners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tig Hines. Dubliners by James Joyce. The Sisters. There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke. Night after night I had passed the house. It was vacation time and studied the lighted square of window, and night after night I had found it lighted in the same way, faintly and evenly. If he was dead, I thought, I would see the reflection of candles on the darkened blind, for I knew that two candles must be set at the head of a corpse. He had often said to me, I am not long for this world, and I thought his words idle. Now I knew they were true. Every night as I gazed up at the window I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It had always sounded strangely in my ears, like the word gnomon in the Euclid and the word simony in the Catechism, but now it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it and to look upon its deadly work. Old Cotter was sitting at the fire, smoking, when I came downstairs to supper. While my aunt was ladling out my stirabout, he said, as if returning to some former remark of his, Now, I wouldn't say he was, exactly, but there was something queer. There was something uncanny about him. I'll tell you my opinion. He began to puff at his pipe, no doubt arranging his opinion in his mind. Tiresome old fool! When we knew him first he used to be rather interesting, talking of faints and worms, but I soon grew tired of him and his endless stories about the distillery. "'I have my own theory about it,' he said. "'I think it was one of those peculiar cases. But it's hard to say.' He began to puff again at his pipe without giving us his theory. My uncle saw me staring and said to me, "'Well, so your old friend is gone, you'd be sorry to hear.' Who? said I. Father Flynn. Is he dead? Mr. Cotter here has just told us. He was passing by the house. I knew that I was under observation, so I continued eating as if the news had not interested me. My uncle explained to old Cotter. The youngster and he were great friends. The old chap taught him a great deal, mind you, and they say he had a great wish for him. God have mercy on his soul, said my aunt piously. Old Cotter looked at me for a while. I felt that his little beady black eyes were examining me, but I would not satisfy him by looking up from my plate. He returned to his pipe and finally spat rudely into the grate. "'I wouldn't like children of mine,' he said, to have too much to say to a man like that.' "'How do you mean, Mr. Cotter?' asked my aunt. "'What I mean is,' said old Cotter, "'it's bad for children. My idea is, let a young lad run about and play with young lads of his own age and not be—am I right, Jack?" "'That's my principle, too,' said my uncle. Let him learn to box his corner. That's what I'm always saying to that Rosicrucian there. Take exercise. Why, when I was a nipper, every morning of my life I had a cold bath, winter and summer. And that's what stands to me now. Education is all very fine and large. Uh, Mr. Cotter might take a pick of that leg of mutton," he added to my aunt. "'No, no, not for me said old Cotter. My aunt brought the dish from the safe and put it on the table. "'But why do you think it's not good for children, Mr. Cotter?' 
she asked. "'It's bad for children,' said old Cotter, "'because their minds are so impressionable. When children see things like that, you know, it has an effect.' I crammed my mouth with stirabout for fear I might give utterance to my anger. Tiresome old red-nosed imbecile! It was late when I fell asleep. Though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child, I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. In the dark of my room I imagined that I saw again the heavy grey face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas. But the grey face still followed me. It murmured, and I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region, and there again I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice, and I wondered why it smiled continually, and why the lips were so moist with spittle. But then I remembered that it had died of paralysis, and I felt that I too was smiling feebly, as if to absolve the simoniac of his sin. The next morning after breakfast I went down to look at the little house in Great Britain Street. It was an unassuming shop, registered under the vague name of Drapery. The drapery consisted mainly of children's booties and umbrellas, and on ordinary days a notice used to hang in the window saying, Umbrellas Recovered. No notice was visible now, for the shutters were up. A crepe bouquet was tied to the door-knocker with ribbon. Two poor women and a telegram boy were reading the card pinned on the crepe. I also approached and read, July 1st, 1895. The Reverend James Flynn, formerly of St. Catherine's Church, Meath Street, aged sixty-five years. Rest in peace. The reading of the card persuaded me that he was dead, and I was disturbed to find myself at check. Had he not been dead I would have gone into the little dark room behind the shop to find him sitting in his armchair by the fire, nearly smothered in his greatcoat. Perhaps my aunt would have given me a packet of high toast for him and this present would have roused him from his stupefied doze. It was always I who emptied the packet into his black snuff-box, for his hands trembled too much to allow him to do this without spilling half the snuff about the floor. Even as he raised his large trembling hand to his nose, little clouds of smoke dribbled through his fingers over the front of his coat. It may have been these constant showers of snuff which gave his ancient priestly garments their green faded look for the red handkerchief, blackened as it always was with the snuff-stains of a week, with which he tried to brush away the fallen grains, was quite inefficacious. I wished to go in and look at him, but I had not the courage to knock. I walked away slowly along the sunny side of the street, reading all the theatrical advertisements in the shop windows as I went. I found it strange that neither I nor the day seemed in a morning mood, and I felt even annoyed at discovering in myself a sensation of freedom, as if I had been freed from something by his death. I wondered at this, for, as my uncle had said the night before, he had taught me a great deal. He had studied in the Irish college in Rome, and he had taught me to pronounce Latin properly. He had told me stories about the catacombs and about Napoleon Bonaparte, and he explained to me the meaning of the different ceremonies of the Mass and of the different vestments worn by the priest. Sometimes he had amused himself by putting difficult questions to me, asking me what one should do in certain circumstances, or whether such and such sins were mortal or venial, or only imperfections. 
His questions showed me how complex and mysterious were certain institutions of the church, which I had always regarded as the simplest acts. The duties of the priest towards the Eucharist and towards the secrecy of the confessional seemed so grave to me that I wondered how anybody had ever found in himself the courage to undertake them. And I was not surprised when he told me that the fathers of the church had written books as thick as the post-office directory and as closely printed as the law notices in the newspaper, elucidating all those intricate questions. Often when I thought of this I could make no answer, or only a very foolish and halting one, upon which he used to smile and nod his head twice or thrice. Sometimes he used to put me through the responses of the Mass, which he had made me learn by heart, and as I pattered he used to smile pensively and nod his head now and then pushing huge pinches of snuff up each nostril alternately. When he smiled he used to uncover his big discoloured teeth and let his tongue lie upon his lower lip, a habit which had made me feel uneasy in the beginning of our acquaintance before I knew him well. As I walked along in the sun I remembered old Cotter's words and tried to remember what had happened afterwards in the dream. I remembered that I had noticed long velvet curtains and a swinging lamp of antique fashion. I felt that I had been very far away, in some land where the customs were strange, in Persia, I thought, but I could not remember the end of the dream. In the evening my aunt took me with her to visit the house of mourning. It was after sunset, but the window-panes of the houses that looked to the west reflected the tawny gold of a great bank of clouds. Nanny received us in the hall, and, as it would have been unseemly to have shouted at her, my aunt shook hands with her for all. The old woman pointed upstairs interrogatively, and on my aunt's nodding proceeded to toil up the narrow staircase before us, her bowed head being scarcely above the level of the banister rail. At the first landing she stopped and beckoned us forward encouragingly towards the open door of the dead room. My aunt went in, and the old woman, seeing that I hesitated to enter, began to beckon to me again repeatedly with her hand. I went in on tiptoe. The room through the lace end of the blind was suffused with dusky golden light, amid which the candles looked like pale thin flames. He had been coffined. Nanny gave the lead, and we three knelt down at the foot of the bed. I pretended to pray, but I could not gather my thoughts because the old woman's mutterings distracted me. I noticed how clumsily her skirt was hooked at the back, and how the heels of her cloth boots were trodden down all to one side. The fancy came to me that the old priest was smiling as he lay there in his coffin. But no, when we rose and went up to the head of the bed I saw that he was not smiling. There he lay, solemn and copious, vested as for the altar, his large hands loosely retaining a chalice. His face was very truculent, grey and massive with black cavernous nostrils, and circled by a scanty white fur. There was a heavy odour in the room, the flowers. We blessed ourselves and came away. In the little room downstairs we found Eliza seated in his armchair in state. I groped my way towards my usual chair in the corner, while Nanny went to the sideboard and brought out a decanter of sherry and some wine-glasses. She set these on the table and invited us to take a little glass of wine. Then, at her sister's bidding, she filled out the sherry into the glasses and passed them to us. She pressed me to take some cream crackers also, but I declined because I thought I would make too much noise eating them. 
She seemed to be somewhat disappointed at my refusal, and went over quietly to the sofa where she sat down behind her sister. No one spoke. We all gazed at the empty fireplace. My aunt waited until Eliza sighed, and then said, "'Ah, well, he's gone to a better world.' Eliza sighed again and bowed her head in assent. My aunt fingered the stem of her wine-glass before sipping a little. "'Did he—peacefully?' she asked. "'Oh, quite peacefully, ma'am,' said Eliza. "'You couldn't tell when the breath went out of him. He had a beautiful death, God be praised. And everything—Father O'Rourke was in with him a Tuesday, and anointed him, and prepared him and all. He knew, then. He was quite resigned. He looks quite resigned," said my aunt. That's what the woman we had in to wash him said. She said, he just looked as if he was asleep. He looked that peaceful and resigned. No one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse. Yes, indeed," said my aunt. She sipped a little more from her glass and said, Well, Miss Flynn, at any rate, it must be a great comfort for you to know that you did all you could for him. You are both very kind to him, I must say. Eliza smoothed her dress over her knees. "'Ah, poor James,' she said. "'God knows we done all we could, as poor as we are. We wouldn't see him want anything while he was in it.' Nanny had leaned her head against the sofa pillow and seemed about to fall asleep. "'There's poor Nanny,' said Eliza, looking at her. "'She's wore out. All the work we had, she and me, getting in the woman to wash him, and then laying him out and then the coffin, and then arranging about the mass in the chapel. Only for Father O'Rourke I don't know what we'd have done at all. It was him brought us all them flowers, and them two candlesticks out of the chapel, and wrote out a notice for the free man's general, and took charge of all the papers for the cemetery and poor James's insurance. "'Wasn't that good of him?' said my aunt. Eliza closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. "'Ah!' There's no friends like the old friends," she said, when all is said and done. No friends that a body can trust. Indeed, that's true," said my aunt. And I'm sure now that he's gone to his eternal reward he won't forget you and all your kindness to him. Ah, poor James," said Eliza. He was no great trouble to us. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. Still, I know he's gone and all to that. It's when it's all over that you'll miss him," said my aunt. I know that," said Eliza. I won't be bringing him in his cup of beef tea any more. Nor you, ma'am, sending him his snuff. Ah, poor James! She stopped, as if she were communing with the past, and then said shrewdly, "Mind you, I noticed there was something queer coming over him latterly. Whenever I'd bring in his soup to him there, I'd find him with his breviary fallen to the floor." lying back in the chair and his mouth open. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned, then she continued. But still and all, he kept on saying that before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one fine day just to see the old house again, where we were all born down in Irish town, and take me and Nanny with him. If we could only get one of them new-fangled carriages that makes no noise that Father O'Rourke told them about, them with the rheumatic wheels, for the day cheap he said, at Johnny Rush's over the way there, and drive out the three of us together of a Sunday evening. He had his mind set on that. Poor James! 
the Lord of mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Eliza took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes with it. Then she put it back again in her pocket and gazed into the empty grate for some time without speaking. He was too scrupulous always, she said. The duties of the priesthood was too much for him. And then his life was, you might say, crossed. Yes, said my aunt. He was a disappointed man. You could see that. A silence took possession of the little room, and under cover of it I approached the table and tasted my sherry, and then returned quietly to my chair in the corner. Eliza seemed to have fallen into a deep reverie. We waited respectfully for her to break the silence, and after a long pause she said slowly, It was that chalice he broke. That was the beginning of it. Of course, they say it was all right, that it contained nothing, I mean. But still, they say it was the boy's fault. But poor James was so nervous, God be merciful to him. And was that it? said my aunt. I heard something. Eliza nodded. That affected his mind, she said. After that he began to mope by himself, talking to no one and wandering about by himself. So one night he was wanted for to go on a call, and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked high up and low down, and still they couldn't see a sight of him anywhere. So then the clerk suggested to try the chapel. So then they got the keys and opened the chapel, and the clerk and Father O'Rourke and another priest that was there brought in a light for to look for him. And what do you think? But there he was, sitting up by himself in the dark in his confession box, wide awake, and laughing like, softly to himself. She stopped suddenly as if to listen. I too listened, but there was no sound in the house, and I knew that the old priest was lying still in his coffin as we had seen him, solemn and truculent in death, an idle chalice on his breast. Eliza resumed, wide awake and laughing like to himself. So then, of course, when they saw that, that made them think that there was something gone wrong with him. End of Story 1 The Sisters Story Two of Dubliners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Encounter. It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He had a little library made up of old numbers of the Union Jack, Pluck, and the Halfpenny Marvel. Every evening after school, we met in his back garden and arranged Indian battles. He and his fat young brother Leo the Idler held the loft of the stable while we tried to carry it by storm or we fought a pitched battle on the grass. But however well we fought, we never won siege or battle, and all our bouts ended with Joe Dillon's war-dance of victory. His parents went to eight o'clock mass every morning in Gardiner Street, and the peaceful odour of Mrs. Dillon was prevalent in the hall of the house. But he played too fiercely for us who were younger and more timid. He looked like some kind of an Indian when he capered round the garden, an old tea cosy on his head beating a tin with his fist and yelling, Ya, yaka, yaka, yaka. Everyone was incredulous when it was reported that he had a vocation for the priesthood. Nevertheless, it was true. A spirit of unruliness diffused itself among us, and under its influence differences of culture and constitution were waived. We banded ourselves together, some boldly, some in jest, and some almost in fear and of the number of these latter, the reluctant Indians who were afraid to seem studious or lacking in robustness, I was one. 
The adventures related in the literature of the Wild West were remote from my nature, but at least they opened doors of escape. I liked better some American detective stories which were traversed from time to time by unkempt, fierce and beautiful girls. Though there was nothing wrong in these stories, and though their intention was sometimes literary, they were circulated secretly at school. One day, when Father Butler was hearing the four pages of Roman history, clumsy Leo Dillon was discovered with a copy of the Halfpenny Marvel. "'This page or this page? This page. Now, Dillon, up!' Hardly had the day. "'Go on. What day?' Hardly had the day dawned. "'Have you studied it? What have you there in your pocket?' Everyone's heart palpitated as Leo Dillon handed up the paper, and everyone assumed an innocent face. Father Butler turned over the pages, frowning. "'What is this rubbish?' he said. "'The Apache chief. Is this what you read instead of studying your Roman history? Let me not find any more of this wretched stuff in this college. The man who wrote it, I suppose, was some wretched fellow who writes these things for a drink. I'm surprised at boys like you, educated, reading such stuff. I could understand it if you were national school boys. Now, Dylan, I advise you strongly. Get at your work or—' This rebuke during the sober hours of school paled much of the glory of the Wild West for me, and the confused, puffy face of Leo Dillon awakened one of my consciences. But when the restraining influence of the school was at a distance I began to hunger again for wild sensations, for the escape which those chronicles of disorder alone seemed to offer me. The mimic warfare of the evening became at last as wearisome to me as the routine of school in the morning because I wanted real adventures to happen to myself. But real adventures, I reflected, do not happen to people who remain at home. They must be sought abroad. The summer holidays were near at hand when I made up my mind to break out of the weariness of school life for one day at least. With Leo Dillon and a boy named Mahony I planned a day's mitchin. Each of us saved up sixpence. We were to meet at ten in the morning on the canal bridge. Mahony's big sister was to write an excuse for him, and Leo Dillon was to tell his brother to say he was sick. We arranged to go along the wharf road until we came to the ships, then to cross in the ferry-boat and walk out to see the pigeon-house. Leo Dillon was afraid we might meet Father Butler or someone out at the college, but Mahony asked, very sensibly, what would Father Butler be doing out at the pigeon-house? We were reassured, and I brought the first stage of the plot to an end by collecting sixpence from the other two at the same time showing them my own sixpence. When we were making the last arrangements on the eve we were all vaguely excited. We shook hands, laughing, and Mahony said, "'Till tomorrow, mates!' That night I slept badly. In the morning I was the first comer to the bridge as I lived nearest. I hid my books in the long grass near the ash-pit at the end of the garden, where nobody ever came, and hurried along the canal bank. It was a mild sunny morning in the first week of June. I sat up on the coping of the bridge, admiring my frail canvas shoes, which I had diligently pipe-clayed overnight, and watching the docile horses pulling a tramload of business people up the hill. All the branches of the tall trees which lined the mall were gay with little light green leaves, and the sunlight slanted through them onto the water. The granite stone of the bridge was beginning to be warm, and I began to pat it with my hands in time to an air in my head. I was very happy. When I had been sitting there for five or ten minutes I saw Mahony's grey suit approaching. He came up the hill smiling, 
and clambered up beside me on the bridge. While we were waiting he brought out the catapult which bulged from his inner pocket, and explained some improvements which he had made in it. I asked him why he had brought it, and he told me he had brought it to have some gas with the birds. Mahony used slang freely, and spoke of Father Butler as old Bunzer. We waited on for a quarter of an hour more, but still there was no sign of Leo Dillon. Mahony at last jumped down and said, "'Come along. I knew Fatty had funk it.' "'And his sixpence,' I said. "'That's forfeit,' said Mahony. "'And so much the better for us. A bob and a tanner instead of a bob.' We walked along the North Strand Road till we came to the vitriol works, and then turned to the right along the wharf road. Mahony began to play the Indian as soon as we were out of public sight. He chased a crowd of ragged girls, brandishing his loaded catapult, and when two ragged boys began out of chivalry to fling stones at us, he proposed that we should charge them. I objected that the boys were too small, and so we walked on, the ragged troops screaming after us, Swaddlers! Swaddlers! thinking that we were Protestants, because Mahony, who was dark-complexioned, wore the silver badge of a cricket club in his cap. When we came to the smoothing iron we arranged a siege, but it was a failure because you must have at least three. We revenged ourselves on Leo Dillon by saying what a funk he was, and guessing how many he would get at three o'clock from Mr. Ryan. We came then near the river. We spent a long time walking about the noisy streets flanked by high stone walls, watching the working of cranes and engines, and often being shouted at for our immobility by the drivers of groaning carts. It was noon when we reached the quays. As all the labourers seemed to be eating their lunches, we bought two big cudden buns and sat down to eat them on some metal piping beside the river. We pleased ourselves with the spectacle of Dublin's commerce, the barges signalled from far away by their curls of woolly smoke, the brown fishing fleet beyond Ring's End, the big white sailing vessel which was being discharged on the opposite quay. Manny said it would be right skit to run away to sea on one of those big ships, and even I, looking at the high masts, saw or imagined the geography which had been scantily dosed to me at school, gradually taking substance under my eyes. School and home seemed to recede from us, and their influences upon us seemed to wane. We crossed the Liffey in a ferry-boat, paying our toll to be transported in the company of two labourers and a little Jew with a bag. We were serious to the point of solemnity, but once during the short voyage our eyes met and we laughed. When we landed we watched the discharging of the graceful tree-master which we had observed from the other quay. Some bystander said that she was a Norwegian vessel. I went to the stern and tried to decipher the legend upon it, but failing to do so I came back and examined the foreign sailors, to see had any of them green eyes, for I had some confused notion. The sailors' eyes were blue and grey and even black. The only sailor whose eyes could have been called green was a tall man who amused the crowd on the quay by calling out cheerfully every time the planks fell, "'All right, all right!' When we were tired of this sight we wandered slowly into Ring's End. The day had grown sultry, and in the windows of the grocer's shops musty biscuits lay bleaching. We bought some biscuits and chocolate which we ate sedulously, as we wandered through the squalid streets where the families of the fishermen live. We could find no dairy, and so we went into a huckster shop and bought a bottle of raspberry lemonade each. Refreshed by this, Mahony chased the cat down a lane, but the cat escaped into a wide field. We both felt rather tired, 
and when we reached the field we made at once for a slope and bank over the ridge of which we could see the dodder. It was too late and we were too tired to carry out our project of visiting the pigeon-house. We had to be home before four o'clock lest our adventure should be discovered. Mahony looked regretfully at his catapult, and I had to suggest going home by train before he regained any cheerfulness. The sun went in behind some clouds and left us to our jaded thoughts and the crumbs of our provisions. There was nobody but ourselves in the field. When we had lain on the bank for some time without speaking, I saw a man approaching from the far end of the field. I watched him lazily as I chewed one of those green stems on which girls tell fortunes. He came along by the bank slowly. He walked with one hand upon his hip, and in the other hand he held a stick with which he tapped the turf lightly. He was shabbily dressed in a suit of greenish-black, and wore what we used to call a jerry-hat with a high crown. He seemed to be fairly old, for his moustache was ashen grey. When he passed at our feet he glanced up at us quickly, and then continued his way. We followed him with our eyes, and saw that when he had gone on for perhaps fifty paces he turned about and began to retrace his steps. He walked towards us very slowly, always tapping the ground with his stick, so slowly that I thought he was looking for something in the grass. He stopped when he came level with us and bade us good day. We answered him, and he sat down beside us on the slope slowly and with great care. He began to talk of the weather, saying that it would be a very hot summer, and adding that the seasons had changed greatly since he was a boy a long time ago. He said that the happiest time of one's life was undoubtedly one's schoolboy days, and that he would give anything to be young again. While he expressed these sentiments, which bored us a little, we kept silent. Then he began to talk of school and of books. He asked us whether we had read the poetry of Thomas More or the works of Sir Walter Scott and Lord Lytton. I pretended that he had read every book he mentioned, so that in the end he said, Ah, I can see you are a bookworm like myself. Now, he added, pointing to Mahony, who was regarding us with open eyes, he is different. He goes in for games. He said he had all Sir Walter Scott's works and all Lord Lytton's works at home, and never tired of reading them. Of course, he said, there were some of Lord Lytton's works which boys couldn't read. Mahony asked why boys couldn't read them, a question which agitated and pained me, because I was afraid the man would think I was as stupid as Mahony. The man, however, only smiled. I saw that he had great gaps in his mouth between his yellow teeth. Then he asked us which of us had the most sweethearts. Mahony mentioned lightly that he had three totties. The man asked me how many had I. I answered that I had none. He did not believe me and said he was sure I must have one. I was silent. Tell us, said Mahony pertly to the man, how many have you yourself? The man smiled as before and said that when he was our age he had lots of sweethearts. Every boy, he said, has a little sweetheart. His attitude on this point struck me as strangely liberal in a man of his age. In my heart I thought that what he said about boys and sweethearts was reasonable, but I disliked the words in his mouth, and I wondered why he shivered once or twice as if he feared something or felt a sudden chill. As he proceeded I noticed that his accent was good. He began to speak to us about girls, saying what nice soft hair they had and how soft our hands were and how all girls were not so good as they seemed to be, if only one knew. There was nothing he liked, he said, 
so much as looking at a nice young girl, at her nice white hands and her beautiful soft hair. They gave me the impression that he was repeating something which he had learnt by heart, or that, magnetized by some words of his own speech, his mind was slowly circling round and round in the same orbit. At times he spoke as if he were simply alluding to some fact that everybody knew, and at times he lowered his voice and spoke mysteriously, as if he were telling us something secret which he did not wish others to overhear. He repeated his phrases over and over again, varying them and surrounding them with his monotonous voice. I continued to gaze towards the foot of the slope, listening to him. After a long while his monologue paused. He stood up slowly, saying that he had to leave us for a minute or so, a few minutes, and, without changing the direction of my gaze, I saw him walking slowly away from us towards the near end of the field. We remained silent when he had gone. After a silence of a few minutes I heard Manny exclaim, I say, look what he's doing. As I neither answered nor raised my eyes, Mahony exclaimed again, I say, he's a queer old josser. In case he asks us for our names, I said, let you be Murphy and I'll be Smith. We said nothing further to each other. I was still considering whether I would go away or not when the man came back and sat down beside us again. Hardly had he sat down when Mahony, catching sight of the cat which had escaped him, sprang up and pursued her across the field. The man and I watched the chase. The cat escaped once more, and Mahony began to throw stones at the wall she had escalated. Desisting from this, he began to wander about the far end of the field aimlessly. After an interval the man spoke to me. He said that my friend was a very rough boy, and asked did he get whipped often at school. I was going to reply indignantly that we were not national schoolboys to be whipped, as he called it, but I remained silent. He began to speak on the subject of chastising boys. His mind, as if magnetised again by his speech, seemed to circle slowly round and round its new centre. He said that when boys were that kind they ought to be whipped, and well whipped. When a boy was rough and unruly there was nothing would do him any good but a good sound whipping. A slap on the hand or a box on the ear was no good. What he wanted was to get a nice warm whipping. I was surprised at this sentiment, and involuntarily glanced up at his face. As I did so, I met the gaze of a pair of bottle-green eyes, peering at me from under a twitching forehead. I turned my eyes away again. The man continued his monologue. He seemed to have forgotten his recent liberalism. He said that if ever he found a boy talking to girls, or having a girl for a sweetheart, he would whip him and whip him, and that would teach him not to be talking to girls. And if a boy had a girl for a sweetheart and told lies about it, then he would give him such a whipping as no boy ever got in this world. He said that there was nothing in this world he would like so well as that. He described to me how he would whip such a boy, as if he were unfolding some elaborate mystery. He would love that, he said, better than anything in this world. And his voice, as he led me monotonously through the mystery, grew almost affectionate and seemed to plead with me that I should understand him. I waited till his monologue paused again. Then I stood up abruptly. Lest I should betray my agitation, I delayed a few moments, pretending to fix my shoe properly, and then, saying that I was obliged to go, I bade him good day. I went up the slope calmly, but my heart was beating quickly with fear that he would seize me by the ankles. When I reached the top of the slope I turned round and, without looking at him, called loudly across the field, 
Morphy!' My voice had an accent of forced bravery in it, and I was ashamed of my paltry stratagem. I had to call the name again before Mahony saw me and hallooed in answer. How my heart beat as he came running across the field to me! He ran as if to bring me aid. And I was penitent, for in my heart I had always despised him a little. End of story two An Encounter Story three of Dubliners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Araby. North Richmond Street, being blind, was a quiet street except at the hour when the Christian Brothers School set the boys free. An uninhabited house of two stories stood at the blind end, detached from its neighbours in a square ground. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lives within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. The former tenant of our house, a priest, had died in the back drawing-room. Air, musty from having been long enclosed, hung in all the rooms, and the waste-room behind the kitchen was littered with old, useless papers. Among these I found a few paper-covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp, the abbot by Walter Scott, the devout communicant, and the memoirs of Vidoc. I liked the last best because its leaves were yellow. The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few straggling bushes, under one of which I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle pump. He had been a very charitable priest. In his will he had left all his money to institutions and the furniture of his house to his sister. When the short days of winter came, dusk fell before we had well eaten our dinners. When we met in the street the houses had grown sombre. The space of sky above us was the colour of ever-changing violet, and towards it the lamps of the street lifted their feeble lanterns. The cold air stung us and we played till our bodies glowed. Our shouts echoed in the silent street. The career of our play brought us through the dark muddy lanes behind the houses, where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the cottages to the back doors of the dark dripping gardens where odours arose from the ash-pits, to the dark odorous stables where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse, or shook music from the buckled harness. When we returned to the street light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed, or if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother into his tea we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and if she remained we left our shadow and walked up to Mangan's steps resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-open door. Her brother always teased her before he obeyed, and I stood by the railings looking at her. Her dress swung as she moved her body, and the soft rope of her hair tossed from side to side. Every morning I lay on the floor in the front parlour watching her door. The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash, so that I could not be seen. When she came out on the doorstep my heart leaped. I ran to the hall, seized my books and followed her. I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and when we came near the point at which our ways diverged I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her, except for a few casual words and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. 
Her image accompanied me even in places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings, when my aunt went marketing, I had to go to carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets, jostled by drunken men and bargaining women, amid the curses of labourers, the shrill litanies of shop-boys who stood on guard by the barrels of pigs' cheeks, the nasal chanting of street-singers, who sang a camalia about O'Donovan Rossa, or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers and praises, which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears, I could not tell why, and at times a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future. I did not know whether I would ever speak to her or not, or if I spoke to her, how I could tell her of my confused adoration. But my body was like a harp, and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires. One evening I went into the back drawing-room in which the priest had died. It was a dark, rainy evening, and there was no sound in the house. Through one of the broken panes I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire to veil themselves and feeling that I was about to slip from them, I pressed the palms of my hands together until they trembled, murmuring, O oh love, O oh love, many times. At last she spoke to me. When she addressed the first words to me I was so confused that I did not know what to answer. She asked me was I going to Araby. I forgot whether I answered yes or no. It would be a splendid bazaar, she said. She would love to go. And why can't you? I asked. While she spoke she turned a silver bracelet round and round her wrist. She could not go, she said, because there would be a retreat that week in our convent. Her brother and two other boys were fighting for their caps, and I was alone at the railings. She held one of the spikes, bowing her head towards me. The light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of our neck, lit up our hair that rested there, and fallen, lit up the hand upon the railing. It fell over one side of her dress and caught the white border of a petticoat, just visible as she stood at ease. "'It's well for you,' she said. "'If I go,' I said, "'I will bring you something.' What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening! I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days. I chafed against the work of school. At night in my bedroom and by day in the classroom her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. My aunt was surprised and hoped it was not some Freemason affair. I answered few questions in class. I watched my master's face pass from amiability to sternness. He hoped I was not beginning to idle. I could not call my wandering thoughts together. I had hardly any patience with the serious work of life which, now that it stood between me and my desire, seemed to me child's play—ugly, monotonous child's play. 
On Saturday morning I reminded my uncle that I wished to go to the bazaar in the evening. He was fussing at the hall stand looking for the hat brush, and answered me curtly, "'Yes, boy, I know.' As he was in the hall I could not go into the front parlour and lie at the window. I left the house in bad humour and walked slowly towards the school. The air was pitilessly raw, and already my heart misgave me. When I came home to dinner my uncle had not yet been home. Still, it was early. I sat staring at the clock for some time, and when its ticking began to irritate me I left the room. I mounted the staircase and gained the upper part of the house. The high, cold, empty, gloomy rooms liberated me, and I went from room to room singing. From the front window I saw my companions playing below in the street. Their cries reached me, weakened and indistinct, and leaning my forehead against the cool glass I looked over at the dark house where she lived. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown-clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and at the border below the dress. When I came downstairs again I found Mrs. Mercer sitting at the fire. She was an old, garrulous woman, a pawnbroker's widow, who collected used stamps for some pious purpose. I had to endure the gossip of the tea-table. The meal was prolonged beyond an hour, and still my uncle did not come. Mrs. Mercer stood up to go. She was sorry she couldn't wait any longer, but it was after eight o'clock and she did not like to be out late as the night air was bad for her. When she had gone I began to walk up and down the room, clenching my fists. My aunt said, "'I'm afraid you may have to put off your bazaar for this night of our Lord.' At nine o'clock I heard my uncle's latch-key in the hall door. I heard him talking to himself and heard the hall stand rocking when it had received the weight of his overcoat. I could interpret these signs. When he was midway through his dinner I asked him to give me the money to go to the bazaar. He had forgotten. "'The people are in bed and after their fore sleep now,' he said. I did not smile. My aunt said to him energetically, "'Can't you give him the money and let him go? You've kept him late enough as it is.' My uncle said he was very sorry he had forgotten. He said he believed in the old saying, "'All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy.' He asked me where I was going, and when I had told him a second time he asked me did I know the Arab's farewell to his steed. When I left the kitchen he was about to recite the opening lines of the piece to my aunt. I held a florin tightly in my hand as I strode down Buckingham Street towards the station. The sight of the streets, thronged with buyers and glaring with gas, recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in a third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onward among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Row station a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors, but the porters moved them back, saying that it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage. In a few minutes the train drew up beside an impoverished wooden platform. I passed out onto the road and saw by the lighted dial of a clock that it was ten minutes to ten. In front of me was a large building which displayed the magical name. I could not find any sixpenny entrance, and fearing that the bazaar would be closed I passed in quickly through a turnstile, handing a shilling to a weary-looking man. I found myself in a big hall, girdled at half its height by a gallery. Nearly all the stalls were closed, and a greater part of the hall was in darkness. 
I recognized the silence like that which pervades a church after a service. I walked into the centre of the bazaar timidly. A few people were gathered about the stalls which were still open. Before a curtain, over which the words Café Chanton were written in coloured lamps, two men were counting money on a salver. I listened to the fall of the coins. Remembering with difficulty why I had come, I went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flowered tea-sets. At the door of the stall a young lady was talking and laughing with two young gentlemen. I remarked their English accents and listened vaguely to their conversation. Oh, I never said such a thing. Oh, but you did. Oh, but I didn't. Didn't she say that? Yes, I heard her. Oh, there's a fib. Observing me, the young lady came over and asked me did I wish to buy anything. The tone of her voice was not encouraging. She seemed to have spoken to me out of a sense of duty. I looked humbly at the great jars that stood like eastern guards at either side of the dark entrance to the stall and murmured, No, thank you. The young lady changed the position of one of the vases and went back to the two young men. They began to talk of the same subject. Once or twice the young lady glanced at me over her shoulder. I lingered before her stall, though I knew my stay was useless, to make my interest in her wares seem the more real. Then I turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar. I allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket. I heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out. The upper part of the hall was now completely dark. Gazing up into the darkness I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. End of Story 3 Araby Story 4 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eveline She sat at the window watching the evening invade the avenue. Her head was leaned against the window-curtains, and in her nostrils was the odour of dusty Cretan. She was tired. Few people passed. The man out of the last house passed on his way home. She heard his footsteps clacking along the concrete pavement, and afterwards crunching on the cinder-path before the new red houses. One time there used to be a field there in which they used to play every evening with the other people's children. Then a man from Belfast bought the field and built houses in it. Not like their little brown houses, but bright brick houses with shining roofs. The children of the avenue used to play together in that field. The Divines, the Waters, the Duns, little Kyo the Cripple, she and her brothers and sisters. Ernest, however, never played. He was too grown up. Her father used often to hunt them in out of the field with his blackthorn stick, but usually little Kyo used to keep nicks and call out when he saw her father coming. Still, they seemed to have been rather happy then. Her father was not so bad then, and besides, her mother was alive. That was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Tizzy Dunn was dead too, and the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. Now she was going to go away, like the others, to leave her home. Home. She looked round the room, reviewing all its familiar objects which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. 
Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she had never dreamed of being divided. And yet during all those years she had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall, above the broken harmonium, beside the coloured print of the promises made to blessed Margaret Mary Alacock. He had been a school-friend of her father. Whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor her father used to pass it with a casual word, "'He is in Melbourne now.' She had consented to go away, to leave her home. Was that wise? She tried to weigh each side of the question. In her home, anyway, she had shelter and food. She had those whom she had known all her life about her. Of course she had to work hard, both in the house and at business. What would they say of her in the stores when they found out that she had run away with a fella? Say she was a fool, perhaps, and her place would be filled up by advertisement. Miss Gavin would be glad. She had always had an edge on her, especially whenever there were people listening. Miss Hill, don't you see those ladies are waiting? Look lively, Miss Hill, please. She would not cry many tears at leaving the stores. But in her new home, in a distant unknown country, it would not be like that. Then she would be married, she, Eveline. People would treat her with respect then. She would not be treated as her mother had been. Even now, though she was over nineteen, she sometimes felt herself in danger of her father's violence. She knew it was that that had given her the palpitations. When they were growing up he had never gone for her like he used to go for Harry and Ernest, because she was a girl. But latterly he had begun to threaten her and say what he would do to her only for her dead mother's sake. And now she had nobody to protect her. Ernest was dead, and Harry, who was in the church decorating business, was nearly always down somewhere in the country. Besides, the invariable squabble for money on Saturday nights had begun to weary her unspeakably. She always gave her entire wages—seven shillings—and Harry always sent up what he could, but the trouble was to get any money from her father. He said she used to squander the money, that she had no head, that he wasn't going to give her his hard-earned money to throw about the streets, and much more, for he was usually fairly bad of a Saturday night. In the end he would give her the money and ask her had she any intention of buying Sunday's dinner. Then she had to rush out as quickly as she could and do her marketing, holding her black leather purse tightly in her hand as she elbowed her way through the crowds, and returning home late under her load of provisions. She had hard work to keep the house together and to see that the two young children who had been left to her charge went to school regularly and got their meals regularly. It was hard work, a hard life. But now that she was about to leave it she did not find it a wholly undesirable life. She was about to explore another life with Frank. Frank was very kind, manly, open-hearted. She was to go away with him by the night-boat, to be his wife and to live with him in Buenos Aires where he had a home waiting for her. How well she remembered the first time she had seen him. He was lodging in a house on the main road where she used to visit. It seemed a few weeks ago. He was standing at the gate, his peaked cap pushed back on his head, and his hair tumbled forward over a face of bronze. Then they had come to know each other. He used to meet her outside the stores every evening and see her home. He took her to see the bohemian girl, and she felt elated as she sat in an unaccustomed part of the theatre with him. He was awfully fond of music and sang a little. People knew that they were courting and when he sang about the lass that loves a sailor she always felt pleasantly confused. 
He used to call her Poppins out of fun. First of all it had been an excitement for her to have a fella, and then she had begun to like him. He had tales of distant countries. He had started as a deck-boy at a pound a month on a ship of the Allen line going out to Canada. He told her the names of the ships he had been on and the names of the different services. He had sailed through the Straits of Magellan, and he told her stories of the terrible Patagonians. He had fallen on his feet in Buenos Aires, he said, and had come over to the old country just for a holiday. Of course her father had found out the affair and had forbidden her to have anything to say to him. "'I know these sailor chaps,' he said. One day he had quarrelled with Frank, and after that she had to meet her lover secretly. The evening deepened in the avenue. The white of two letters in her lap grew indistinct. One was to Harry, the other was to her father. Ernest had been her favourite, but she liked Harry too. Her father was becoming old lately, she noticed. He would miss her. Sometimes he could be very nice. Not long before, when she had been laid up for a day, he had read her out a ghost story and made toast for her at the fire. Another day, when the mother was alive, they had all gone for a picnic to the Hill of Hope. She remembered her father putting on her mother's bonnet to make the children laugh. Her time was running out, but she continued to sit by the window, leaning her head against the window curtain, inhaling the odour of dusty Cretan. Down far in the avenue she could hear a street organ playing. She knew the air. Strange that it should come that very night to remind her of the promise to her mother, her promise to keep the home together as long as she could. She remembered the last night of her mother's illness. She was again in the close dark room at the other side of the hall, and outside she heard a melancholy air of Italy. The organ-player had been ordered to go away and given sixpence. She remembered her father strutting back into the sick-room, saying, "'Damned Italians! Coming over here!' As she mused, the pitiful vision of her mother's life laid its spell on the very quick of her being, that life of commonplace sacrifices closing in final craziness. She trembled as she heard again her mother's voice saying constantly with foolish insistence, Derevant, Saron! Derevant, Saron! She stood up in a sudden impulse of terror. Escape! She must escape! Frank would save her. He would give her life. Perhaps love, too. But she wanted to live. Why should she be unhappy? She had a right to happiness. Frank would take her in his arms, fold her in his arms. He would save her. She stood among the swaying crowd in the station at the north wall. He held her hand, and she knew that he was speaking to her, saying something about the passage over and over again. The station was full of soldiers with brown baggages. Through the wide doors of the sheds she caught a glimpse of the black mass of the boat, lying in beside the quay-wall with illuminated portholes. She answered nothing. She felt her cheek, pale and cold, and out of a maze of distress. She prayed to God to direct her, to show her what was her duty. The boat blew a long mournful whistle into the mist. If she went, tomorrow she would be on the sea with Frank, steaming towards Buenos Aires. Their passage had been booked. Could she still draw back after all he had done for her? Her distress awoke a nausea in her body, and she kept moving her lips in silent, fervent prayer. A bell clanged upon her heart. She felt him seize her hand. Come. All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. He was drawing her into them. He would drown her. 
she gripped with both hands at the iron railing. Come! No, 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 it was impossible. Her hands clutched the iron in frenzy. Amid the seas she sent a cry of anguish. Evelyn! Evie! He rushed beyond the barrier and called to her to follow. He was shouted at to go on, but still he called to her. She set her white face to him, passive, like a helpless animal. Her eyes gave him no sign of love or farewell or recognition. End of Story 4 Evelyn Story 5 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the race The cars came scudding in towards Dublin, running evenly like pellets in the groove of the Nace Road. At the crest of the hill at Inchicor, sightseers had gathered in clumps to watch the cars careering homeward, and through this channel of poverty and inaction the continent sped its wealth and industry. Now and again the clumps of people raised the cheer of the gratefully oppressed. Their sympathy, however, was for the blue cars, the cars of their friends, the French. The French, moreover, were virtual victors. Their team had finished solidly. They had been placed second and third, and the driver of the winning German car was reported a Belgian. Each blue car, therefore, received a double measure of welcome as atop the crest of the hill and each cheer of welcome was acknowledged with smiles and nods by those in the car. In one of these trimly built cars was a party of four young men whose spirits seemed to be at present well above the level of successful gallicism. In fact, these four young men were almost hilarious. They were Charles Seguois, the owner of the car, André Riviere, a young electrician of Canadian birth, a huge Hungarian named Valona, and a neatly groomed young man named Doyle. Segua was in good humour because he had unexpectedly received some orders in advance. He was about to start a motor establishment in Paris. And Riviere was in good humour because he was to be appointed manager of the establishment. These two young men, who were cousins, were also in good humour because of the success of the French cars. Valona was in good humour because he had had a very satisfactory luncheon. And besides, he was an optimist by nature. The fourth member of the party, however, was too excited to be genuinely happy. He was about twenty-six years of age, with a soft light brown moustache and rather innocent-looking grey eyes. His father, who had begun life as an advanced nationalist, had modified his views early. He had made his money as a butcher in Kingstown, and by opening shops in Dublin and in the suburbs he had made his money many times over. He had also been fortunate enough to secure some of the police contracts, and in the end he had become rich enough to be alluded to in the Dublin newspapers as a merchant prince. He had sent his son to England to be educated in a big Catholic college, and had afterwards sent him to Dublin University to study law. Jimmy did not study very earnestly, and took to bad courses for a while. He had money and he was popular and he divided his time curiously between musical and motoring circles. Then he had been sent for a term to Cambridge to see a little life. His father, remonstrative but covertly proud of the excess, had paid his bills and brought him home. It was at Cambridge that he had met Seguois. They were not much more than acquaintances as yet, but Jimmy found great pleasure in the society of one who had seen so much of the world 
and was reputed to own some of the biggest hotels in France. Such a person, as his father agreed, was well worth knowing, even if he had not been the charming companion he was. Valona was entertaining also, a brilliant pianist, but, unfortunately, very poor. The car ran on merrily with its cargo of hilarious youth. The two cousins sat on the front seat, Jimmy and his Hungarian friend sat behind. Decidedly, Valona was in excellent spirits. He kept up a deep bass hum of melody for miles of the road. The Frenchmen flung their laughter and light words over their shoulders, and often Jimmy had to strain forward to catch the quick phrase. This was not altogether pleasant for him, as he had nearly always to make a deft guess at the meaning and shout back a suitable answer in the face of a high wind. Besides, Valona's humming would confuse anybody, the noise of the car too. Rapid motion through space elates one. So does notoriety. So does the possession of money. These were three good reasons for Jimmy's excitement. He had been seen by many of his friends that day in the company of these Continentals. At the control, Ségois had presented him to one of the French competitors, and, in answer to his confused murmur of compliment, the swarthy face of the driver had disclosed a line of shining white teeth. It was pleasant after that honour to return to the profane world of spectators amid nudges and significant looks. Then as to money, he really had a great sum under his control. Ségois perhaps would not think it a great sum, but Jimmy, who, in spite of temporary errors, was at heart the inheritor of solid instincts, knew well with what difficulty it had been got together. This knowledge had previously kept his bills within the limits of reasonable recklessness, and if he had been so conscious of the labour latent in money when there had been questioned merely of some freak of the higher intelligence, how much more so now, when he was about to stake the greater part of his substance. It was a serious thing for him. Of course, the investment was a good one, and Ségois had managed to give the impression that it was by a favour of friendship the might of Irish money was to be included in the capital of the concern. Jimmy had a respect for his father's shrewdness in business matters and in this case it had been his father who had first suggested the investment. Money to be made in the motor business. Pots of money. Moreover, Ségois had the unmistakable air of wealth. Jimmy set out to translate into day's work that lordly car in which he sat. How smoothly it ran! In what style they had come careering along the country roads! The journey laid a magical finger on the genuine pulse of life and gallantly the machinery of human nerves strove to answer the bounding courses of the swift blue animal. They drove down Dame Street. The street was busy with unusual traffic, loud with the horns of motorists and the gongs of impatient tram-drivers. Near the bank Ségois drew up, and Jimmy and his friend alighted. A little knot of people collected on the footpath to pay homage to the snorting motor. The party was to dine together that evening in Ségois' hotel, and, meanwhile, Jimmy and his friend, who was staying with him, were to go home to dress. The car steered out slowly for Grafton Street while the two young men pushed their way through the knot of gazers. They walked northward, with a curious feeling of disappointment in the exercise, while the city hung its pale globes of light above them in a haze of summer evening. In Jimmy's house this dinner had been pronounced an occasion. A certain pride mingled with his parents' trepidation. 
a certain eagerness also to play fast and loose, for the names of great foreign cities have at least this virtue. Jimmy too looked very well when he was dressed, and as he stood in the hall giving a last equation to the bows of his dress tie, his father may have felt even commercially satisfied at having secured for his son qualities often unpurchasable. His father, therefore, was unusually friendly with Valona, and his manner expressed a real respect for foreign accomplishments. But this subtlety of his host was probably lost upon the Hungarian, who was beginning to have a sharp desire for his dinner. The dinner was excellent, exquisite. Segua, Jimmy decided, had a very refined taste. The party was increased by a young Englishman named Routh, whom Jimmy had seen with Segua at Cambridge. The young men supped in a snug room lit by electric candle lamps. They talked volubly and with little reserve. Jimmy, whose imagination was kindling, conceived the lively youth of the Frenchmen twined elegantly upon the firm framework of the Englishman's manner. A graceful image of his, he thought, and a just one. He admired the dexterity with which their host directed the conversation. The five young men had various tastes, and their tongues had been loosened. Valona, with immense respect, began to discover to the mildly surprised Englishman the beauties of the English madrigal, deploring the loss of old instruments. Riviere, not wholly ingenuously, undertook to explain to Jimmy the triumph of the French mechanicians. The resonant voice of the Hungarian was about to prevail in ridicule of the spurious lutes of the romantic painters when Segua shepherded his party into politics. Here was congenial ground for all. Jimmy, under generous influences, felt the buried zeal of his father wake to life within him. He aroused the torpid Routh at last. The room grew doubly hot, and Segua's task grew harder each moment. There was even danger of personal spite. The alert host at an opportunity lifted his glass to humanity, and, when the toast had been drunk, he threw open a window significantly. That night the city wore the mask of a capital. The five young men strolled along Stephen's Green in a faint cloud of aromatic smoke. They talked loudly and gaily, and their cloaks dangled from their shoulders. The people made way for them. At the corner of Grafton Street a short, fat man was putting two handsome ladies on a car in charge of another fat man. The car drove off and the short, fat man caught sight of the party. "'André! It's Farley!' A torrent of talk followed. Farley was an American. No one knew very well what the talk was about. Villona and Riviere were the noisiest, but all the men were excited. They got up on a car, squeezing themselves together amid much laughter. They drove by the crowd, blended now into soft colours, to a music of merry bells. They took the train at Westland Row, and in a few seconds, as it seemed to Jimmy, they were walking out of Kingstown Station. The ticket collector saluted Jimmy. He was an old man. Fine night, sir. It was a serene summer night. The harbour lay like a darkened mirror at their feet. They proceeded towards it with linked arms, singing Caddy Roussel in chorus, stamping their feet at every Ho, 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 hey, vraiment. They got into a rowboat at the slip and made out for the American yacht. There was to be supper, music, cards. Valona said with conviction, It is delightful. There was a yacht piano in the cabin. Valona played a waltz for Farley and Riviere. 
Farley acting as cavalier and Riviera's lady. Then an impromptu square dance, the men devising original figures. What merriment! Jimmy took his part with a will. This was seeing life, at least. Then Farley got out of breath and cried, Stop! A man brought in a light supper, and the young men sat down to it for form's sake. They drank, however. It was bohemian. They drank Ireland, England, France, Hungary, the United States of America. Jimmy made a speech, a long speech, Bologna saying, Hear, hear, whenever there was a pause. There was a great clapping of hands when he sat down. It must have been a good speech. Farley clapped him on the back and laughed loudly. What jovial fellows! What good company they were! Cards! Cards! The table was cleared. Bologna returned quietly to his piano and played voluntaries for them. The other men played game after game, flinging themselves boldly into the adventure. They drank the health of the Queen of Hearts and of the Queen of Diamonds. Jimmy felt obscurely the lack of an audience. The wit was flashing. Play ran very high and paper began to pass. Jimmy did not know exactly who was winning, but he knew that he was losing. But it was his own fault, for he frequently mistook his cards, and the other men had to calculate his IOUs for him. They were devils of fellows, but he wished they would stop. It was getting late. Someone gave the toast of the yacht, the bell of Newport, and then someone proposed one great game for a finish. The piano had stopped. Valona must have gone up on deck. It was a terrible game. They stopped just before the end of it to drink for luck. Jimmy understood that the game lay between Routh and Seguois. What excitement! Jimmy was excited too. He would lose, of course. How much had he written away? The men rose to their feet to play the last tricks, talking and gesticulating. Routh won. The cabin shook with the young men's cheering, and the cards were bundled together. They began then to gather in what they had won. Farley and Jimmy were the heaviest losers. He knew that he would regret in the morning, but at present he was glad of the rest, glad of the dark stupor that would cover up his folly. He leaned his elbows on the table and rested his head between his hands, counting the beats of his temples. The cabin door opened, and he saw the Hungarian standing in a shaft of grey light. Daybreak, gentlemen. End of story five. After the race. Story six of Dubliners. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Gallants. The grey warm evening of August had descended upon the city, and a mild warm air, a memory of summer, circulated in the streets. The streets, shuddered for the repose of Sunday, swarmed with a gaily coloured crowd. Like illumined pearls the lamps shone from the summits of their tall poles upon the living texture below which, changing shape and hue unceasingly, sent up into the warm grey evening air an unchanging, unceasing murmur. Two young men came down the hill of Rutland Square. One of them was just bringing a long monologue to a close. The other, who walked on the verge of the path, and was at times obliged to step on to the road owing to his companion's rudeness, wore an amused, listening face. He was squat and ruddy. A yachting cap was shoved far back from his forehead, and the narrative to which he listened made constant waves of expression break forth over his face 
from the corners of his nose and eyes and mouth. Little jets of wheezing laughter followed one another out of his convulsed body. His eyes, twinkling with cunning enjoyment, glanced at every moment towards his companion's face. Once or twice he rearranged the light waterproof which he had slung over one shoulder in Toreador fashion. His breeches, his white rubber shoes, and his jauntily slung waterproof expressed youth. But his figure fell into rotundity at the waist. His hair was scant and grey, and his face, when the waves of expression had passed over it, had a ravaged look. When he was quite sure that the narrative had ended, he laughed noiselessly for fully half a minute. Then he said, Well, that takes the biscuit. His voice seemed winnowed of vigour, and to enforce his words he added with humour, That takes the solitary, unique, and, if I may so call it, recherche biscuit. He became serious and silent when he had said this. His tongue was tired, for he had been talking all the afternoon in a public house in Dorset Street. Most people considered Lenehan a leech, but in spite of this reputation his adroitness and eloquence had always prevented his friends from forming any general policy against him. He had a brave manner of coming up to a party of them in a bar, and of holding himself nimbly at the borders of the company until he was included in a round. He was a sporting vagrant, armed with a vast stock of stories, limericks, and riddles. He was insensitive to all kinds of discourtesy. No one knew how he achieved the stern task of living, but his name was vaguely associated with racing tissues. "'And where did you pick her up, Corley?' he asked. Corley ran his tongue swiftly along his upper lip. "'One night, man,' he said. I was going along Dame Street, and I spotted a fine tart under Waterhouse's clock, and said good-night, you know. So we went for a walk round by the canal, and she told me she was a slavey in a house in Baggett Street. I put my arm round her and squeezed her a bit that night. Then next Sunday, man, I met her by appointment. We went out to Donnybrook, and I brought her into a field there. She told me she used to go with a dairy man. It was fine, man. Cigarettes every night she'd bring me and paying the tram out and back, and one night she brought me two bloody fine cigars, or the real cheese, you know, that he awfully used to smoke. I was afraid, man, she'd get in the family way, but she's up to the dodge. Maybe she thinks she'll marry her, said Lenehan. I told her I was out of a job, said Corley. I told her I was in Pim's. She doesn't know me name. I was too hairy to tell her that, but she thinks I'm a bit of class, you know. Lenehan laughed again noiselessly. "'Of all the good ones ever I heard,' he said, "'that emphatically takes the biscuit.' Corley Stride acknowledged the compliment. The swing of his burly body made his friend execute a few light skips from the path to the roadway and back again. Corley was the son of an inspector of police, and he had inherited his father's frame and gait. He walked with his hands by his sides, holding himself erect and swaying his head from side to side. His head was large, globular, and oily. It sweated in all weathers, and his large round hat, set upon it sideways, looked like a bulb which had grown out of another. He always stared straight before him, as if he were on parade, and when he wished to gaze after someone in the street, it was necessary for him to move his body from the hips. At present he was about town. Whenever any job was vacant, a friend was always ready to give him the hard word. He was often to be seen walking with policemen in plain clothes, talking earnestly. 
he knew the inner side of all affairs and was fond of delivering final judgments. He spoke without listening to the speech of his companions. His conversation was mainly about himself. What he had said to such a person, and what such a person had said to him, and what he had said to settle the matter. When he reported these dialogues he aspirated the first letter of his name after the manner of Florentines. Lenehan offered his friend a cigarette. As the two young men walked on through the crowd Corley occasionally turned to smile at some of the passing girls, but Lenehan's gaze was fixed on the large faint moon, circled with a double halo. He watched earnestly the passing of the grey web of twilight across its face. At length he said, "Well." Tell me, Corley, I suppose you'll be able to pull it off all right, eh?" Corley closed one eye expressively as an answer. "'Is she game for that?' asked Lennon dubiously. "'You can never know women.' "'She's all right,' said Corley. "'I know the way to get around her, man. She's a bit gone on me.' "'You're what I call a gay Letario,' said Lennon, "'and the proper kind of Letario, too.' A shade of mockery relieved the servility of his manner. To save himself he had the habit of leaving his flattery open to the interpretation of raillery. But Corley had not a subtle mind. "'There's nothing to touch a good slavey,' he affirmed. "'Take my tip for it.' "'By one who has tried them all,' said Lenehan. First, I used to go with girls, you know,' said Corley, unbosoming. "'Girls off the South Circular. I used to take them out, man, on the tram somewhere, and pay the tram, or take them to a band or a play at the theatre or buy them chocolate and sweets or something that way. I used to spend money on them right enough," he added, in a convincing tone, as if he was conscious of being disbelieved. But Lenehan could well believe it. He nodded gravely. "'I know that game,' he said, "'and it's a mug's game.' "'And damn the thing I ever got out of it,' said Corley. "'Ditto here,' said Lenehan. "'Only off of one of them,' said Corley. He moistened his upper lip by running his tongue along it. The recollection brightened his eyes. He too gazed at the pale disk of the moon, now nearly veiled, and seemed to meditate. She was a bit of all right, he said regretfully. He was silent again. Then he added, She's on the turf now. I saw her driving down Earl Street one night with two fellows with her on a car. I suppose that's your doing, said Lenehan. There was others at her before me," said Corley philosophically. This time Lenehan was inclined to disbelieve. He shook his head to and fro and smiled. "'You know you can't kid me, Corley,' he said. "'Honest to God,' said Corley. "'Didn't she tell me herself?' Lenehan made a tragic gesture. "'Base betrayer,' he said. As they passed along the railings of Trinity College Lenehan skipped out into the road and peered up at the clock. Twenty after, he said. Time enough, said Corley. She'll be there all right. I always let her wait a bit. Lennon laughed quietly. Hey, God, Corley, you know how to take them, he said. I'm up to all the little tricks, Corley confessed. But tell me, said Lennon again, are you sure you can bring it off all right? You know, it's a ticklish job. They're damn close on that point, eh? What? His bright small eyes searched his companion's face for reassurance. Corley swung his head to and fro as if to toss aside an insistent insect, and his brows gathered. "'I'll pull it off,' he said. "'Leave it to me, can't you?' Lenehan said no more. 
He did not wish to ruffle his friend's temper, to be sent to the devil, and told that his advice was not wanted. A little tact was necessary. But Corley's brow was soon smooth again. His thoughts were running another way. "'She's a fine, decent tart,' he said with appreciation. "'That's what she is.' They walked along Nassau Street, and then turned into Kildare Street. Not far from the porch of the club, a harpist stood in the roadway, playing to a little ring of listeners. He plucked at the wires heedlessly, glancing quickly from time to time at the face of each newcomer, and from time to time wearily also at the sky. His harp, too, heedless that her coverings had fallen about her knees, seemed weary alike of the eyes of strangers and of her master's hands. One hand played in the bass the melody of silent omoil, while the other hand careered in the treble after each group of notes. The notes of the air sounded deep and full. The two young men walked up the street without speaking, the mournful music following them. When they reached Stephen's Green they crossed the road. Here the noise of trams, the lights and the crowd released them from their silence. "'There she is,' said Corley. At the corner of Hume Street a young woman was standing. She wore a blue dress and a white sailor hat. She stood on the curbstone, swinging a sunshade in one hand. Lenehan grew lively. "'Let's have a look at her, Corley,' he said. Corley glanced sideways at his friend, and an unpleasant grin appeared on his face. "'Are you trying to get inside me?' he asked. "'Damn it,' said Lenehan boldly. "'I don't want an introduction. All I want is to have a look at her. I'm not going to eat her.' "'Oh, a look at her?' said Corley more amiably. "'Well, I'll tell you what. I'll go over and talk to her, and you can pass, boy.' "'Right,' said Lenehan. Corley had already thrown one leg over the chains when Lenehan called out. "'And after, where'll we meet?' "'Half ten, answered Corley, bringing over his other leg. "'Where?' "'Corner of Merrion Street. We'll be coming back.' "'Work it all right now,' said Lenehan in farewell. Corley did not answer. He sauntered across the road, swaying his head from side to side. His bulk, his easy pace, and the solid sound of his boots had something of the conqueror in them. He approached the young woman and, without saluting, began at once to converse with her. She swung her umbrella more quickly and executed half-turns on her heels. Once or twice when he spoke to her at close quarters she laughed and bent her head. Lenehan observed them for a few minutes. Then he walked rapidly along beside the chains at some distance and crossed the road obliquely. As he approached Hume Street corner he found the air heavily scented, and his eyes made a swift anxious scrutiny of the young woman's appearance. She had her Sunday finery on. Her blue serge skirt was held at the waist by a belt of black leather. The great silver buckle of her belt seemed to depress the centre of her body, catching the light stuff of her white blouse like a clip. She wore a short black jacket with mother-of-pearl buttons and a ragged black boa. The ends of her tulle collarette had been carefully disordered, and a big bunch of red flowers was pinned in her bosom, stems upwards. Lenehan's eyes noted approvingly her stout, short, muscular body. Frank rude health glowed in her face, on her fat red cheeks, and in her unabashed blue eyes. Her features were blunt. She had broad nostrils, a straggling mouth which lay open in a contented leer, and two projecting front teeth. 
As he passed, Lenehan took off his cap, and after about ten seconds Corley returned a salute to the air. This he did by raising his hand vaguely and pensively changing the angle of position of his hat. Lenin walked as far as the Shelburne Hotel, where he halted and waited. After waiting for a little time he saw them coming towards him, and, when they turned to the right, he followed them, stepping lightly in his white shoes down one side of Merrion Square. As he walked on slowly, timing his pace to theirs, he watched Corley's head, which turned at every moment towards the young woman's face like a big ball revolving on a pivot. He kept the pair in view until he had seen them climbing the stairs of the Donnybrook tram. Then he turned about and went back the way he had come. Now that he was alone his face looked older. His gaiety seemed to forsake him, and as he came by the railings of the Duke's lawn he allowed his hand to run along them. The air which the harpist had played began to control his movements. His softly padded feet played the melody, while his fingers swept a scale of variations idly along the railings after each group of notes. He walked listlessly round Stephen's Green and then down Grafton Street. Though his eyes took note of many elements of the crowds through which he had passed, they did so morosely. He found trivial all that was meant to charm him and did not answer the glances which invited him to be bold. He knew that he would have to speak a great deal to invent and to amuse, and his brain and throat were too dry for such a task. The problem of how he could pass the hours till he met Corley again troubled him a little. He could think of no way of passing them but to keep on walking. He turned to the left when he came to the corner of Rutland Square, and felt more at ease in the dark, quiet street, the sombre look of which suited his mood. He paused at last before the window of a poor-looking shop, over which the words Refreshment Bar were printed in white letters. On the glass of the window were two flying inscriptions, ginger beer and ginger ale. A cut ham was exposed on a great blue dish, while near it, on a plate, lay a segment of very light plum pudding. He eyed this food earnestly for some time, and then, after glancing warily up and down the street, went into the shop quickly. He was hungry, for except some biscuits which he had asked two grudging curates to bring him, he had eaten nothing since breakfast-time. He sat down at an uncovered wooden table opposite two work-girls and a mechanic. A slatternly girl waited on him. "'How much is a plate of peas?' he asked. Three halfpence, sir,' said the girl. "'Bring me a plate of peas,' he said, "'and a bottle of ginger beer.' He spoke roughly in order to belie his air of gentility, for his entry had been followed by a pause of talk. His face was heated. To appear natural he pushed his cap back on his head and planted his elbows on the table. The mechanic and the two work-girls examined him point by point before resuming their conversation in a subdued voice. The girl brought him a plate of grocer's hot peas, seasoned with pepper and vinegar, a fork and his ginger beer. He ate his food greedily and found it so good that he made a note of the shop mentally. When he had eaten all the peas he sipped his ginger beer and sat for some time thinking of Corley's adventure. In his imagination he beheld the pair of lovers walking along some dark road. He heard Corley's voice in deep energetic gallantries, and saw again the leer of the young woman's mouth. This vision made him feel keenly his own poverty of purse and spirit. He was tired of knocking about, of pulling the devil by the tail, 
of shifts and intrigues. He would be thirty-one in November. Would he never get a good job? Would he never have a home of his own? He thought how pleasant it would be to have a warm fire to sit by and a good dinner to sit down to. He had walked the streets long enough with friends and with girls. He knew what those friends were worth. He knew the girls, too. Experience had embittered his heart against the world, but all hope had not left him. He felt better after having eaten than he had felt before, less weary of his life, less vanquished in spirit. He might yet be able to settle down in some snug corner and live happily if he could only come across some good simple-minded girl with a little of the ready. He paid tuppence halfpenny to the slatternly girl and went out of the shop to begin his wandering again. He went into Capel Street and walked along towards the city hall. Then he turned into Dame Street. At the corner of George's Street he met two friends of his and stopped to converse with them. He was glad that he could rest from all his walking. His friends asked him had he seen Corley and what was the latest. He replied that he had spent the day with Corley. His friends talked very little. They looked vacantly after some figures in the crowd and sometimes made a critical remark. One said that he had seen Mac an hour before in Westmoreland Street. At this Lenehan said that he had been with Mac the night before in Egan's. The young man who had seen Mac in Westmoreland Street asked was it true that Mac had won a bit over a billiard match. Lenehan did not know. He said that Hollihan had stood them drinks in Egan's. He left his friends at a quarter to ten and went up George's Street. He turned to the left at the city markets and walked on into Grafton Street. The crowd of girls and young men had thinned, and on his way up the street he heard many groups and couples bidding one another good night. He went as far as the clock of the College of Surgeons. It was on the stroke of ten. He set off briskly along the northern side of the green, hurrying for fear Corley should return too soon. When he reached the corner of Merrion Street he took his stand in the shadow of a lamp and brought out one of the cigarettes which he had reserved and lit it. He leaned against the lamp-post and kept his gaze fixed on the part from which he expected to see Corley and the young woman return. His mind became active again. He wondered had Corley managed it successfully. He wondered if he had asked her yet, or if he would leave it to the last. He suffered all the pangs and thrills of his friend's situation as well as those of his own, but the memory of Corley's slowly revolving head calmed him somewhat. He was sure Corley would pull it off all right. All at once the idea struck him that perhaps Corley had seen her home by another way and given him the slip. His eyes searched the street. There was no sign of them. Yet it was surely half an hour since he had seen the clock of the College of Surgeons. Would Corley do a thing like that? He lit his last cigarette and began to smoke it nervously. He strained his eyes as each tram stopped at the far corner of the square. They must have gone home by another way. The paper of a cigarette broke and he flung it into the road with a curse. Suddenly he saw them coming towards him. He started with delight and, keeping close to his lamp-post, tried to read the result in their walk. They were walking quickly, the young woman taking quick short steps while Corley kept beside her with his long stride. They did not seem to be speaking. An intimation of the result pricked him like the point of a sharp instrument. He knew Corley would fail. He knew it was no go. They turned down Baggot Street and he followed them at once, taking the other footpath. When they stopped he stopped too. They talked for a few moments 
and then the young woman went down the steps into the area of the house. Corley remained standing at the edge of the path, a little distant from the front steps. Some minutes passed. Then the hall door was opened slowly and cautiously. A woman came running down the front steps and coughed. Corley turned and went towards her. His broad figure hid hers from view for a few seconds, and then she reappeared running up the steps. The door closed on her, and Corley began to walk swiftly towards Stephen's Green. Lenin hurried on in the same direction. Some drops of light rain fell. He took them as a warning, and, glancing back towards the house which the young woman had entered, to see that he was not observed, he ran eagerly across the road. Anxiety and his swift run made him pant. He called out, Hello! Corley! Corley turned his head to see who had called him, and then continued walking as before. Lenehan ran after him, settling the waterproof on his shoulders with one hand. Hello! Corley! he cried again. He came level with his friend, and looked keenly in his face. He could see nothing there. Well, he said, did it come off? They had reached the corner of Eli Place. Still without answering, Corley swerved to the left and went up the side street. His features were composed in stern calm. Lenehan kept up with his friend, breathing uneasily. He was baffled, and a note of menace pierced through his voice. "'Can't you tell us?' he said. "'Did you try her?' Corley halted at the first lamp and stared grimly before him. Then, with a grave gesture, he extended a hand towards the light and, smiling, opened it slowly to the gaze of his disciple. A small gold coin shone in the palm. End of Story 6 Two Galants Story 7 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Boarding House Mrs. Mooney was a butcher's daughter. She was a woman who was quite able to keep things to herself, a determined woman. She had married her father's foreman and opened a butcher's shop near Spring Gardens. But as soon as his father-in-law was dead, Mr. Mooney began to go to the devil. He drank, plundered the till, ran headlong into debt. It was no use making him take the pledge. He was sure to break out again a few days after. By fighting his wife in the presence of customers and by buying bad meat, he ruined his business. One night he went for his wife with a cleaver, and she had to sleep in a neighbour's house. After that they lived apart. She went to the priest and got a separation from him with care of the children. She would give him neither money nor food nor house-room, and so he was obliged to enlist himself as a sheriff's man. He was a shabby, stooped little drunkard with a white face and a white moustache and white eyebrows, pencilled above his little eyes which were pink-veined and raw. And all day long he sat in the bailiff's room waiting to be put on a job. Mrs. Mooney, who had taken what remained of her money out of the butcher's business and set up a boarding-house in Hardwick Street, was a big imposing woman. Her house had a floating population made up of tourists from Liverpool and the Isle of Man, and occasionally artistes from the music halls. Its resident population was made up of clerks from the city. She governed her house cunningly and firmly, knew when to give credit, when to be stern, and when to let things pass. All the resident young men spoke of her as the madam. 
Mrs. Mooney's young men paid fifteen shillings a week for board and lodgings, beer or stout at dinner excluded. They shared in common tastes and occupations, and for this reason they were very chummy with one another. They discussed with one another the chances of favourites and outsiders. Jack Mooney, the madam's son, who was a clerk to a commission agent in Fleet Street, had the reputation of being a hard case. He was fond of using soldiers' obscenities. Usually he came home in the small hours. When he met his friends he had always a good one to tell them, and he was always sure to be on to a good thing, that is to say, a likely horse or a likely artiste. He was also handy with the myths and sang comic songs. On Sunday nights there would often be a reunion in Mrs. Mooney's front drawing-room. The music-hall artistes would oblige, and Sheridan played waltzes and polkas and vamped accompaniments. Polly Mooney, the madam's daughter, would also sing. She sang, I'm a naughty girl, you needn't sham, you know I am. Polly was a slim girl of nineteen. She had light soft hair and a small full mouth. Her eyes, which were grey with a shade of green through them, had a habit of glancing upwards when she spoke with anyone, which made her look like a little perverse Madonna. Mrs. Mooney had first sent her daughter to be a typist in a corn-factor's office, but as a disreputable sheriff's man used to come every other day to the office, asking to be allowed to say a word to his daughter, she had taken her daughter home again and set her to do housework. As Polly was very lively the intention was to give her the run of the young men. Besides, young men like to feel that there is a young woman not very far away. Polly, of course, flirted with the young men. But Mrs. Mooney, who was a shrewd judge, knew that these young men were only passing the time away. None of them meant business. Things went on so for a long time, and Mrs. Mooney began to think of sending Polly back to typewriting when she noticed that something was going on between Polly and one of the young men. She watched the pair and kept her own counsel. Polly knew that she was being watched, but still her mother's persistent silence could not be misunderstood. There had been no open complicity between mother and daughter, no open understanding, but though people in the house began to talk of the affair, still Mrs. Mooney did not intervene. Polly began to grow a little strange in her manner, and the young man was evidently perturbed. At last, when she judged it to be the right moment, Mrs. Mooney intervened. She dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat, and in this case she had made up her mind. It was a bright Sunday morning of early summer, promising heat, but with a fresh breeze blowing. All the windows of the boarding-house were open, and the lace curtains ballooned gently towards the street beneath the raised sashes. The belfry of George's church sent out constant peals, and worshippers, singly or in groups, traversed the little circus before the church, revealing their purpose by their self-contained demeanour no less than by the little volumes in their gloved hands. Breakfast was over in the boarding-house, and the table of the breakfast-room was covered with plates on which lay yellow streaks of eggs with morsels of bacon-fat and bacon-rind. Mrs. Mooney sat in the straw armchair and watched the servant, Mary, remove the breakfast-things. She made Mary collect the crusts and pieces of broken bread to help to make Tuesday's bread-pudding. When the table was cleared, the broken bread collected, the sugar and butter safe under lock and key, she began to reconstruct the interview which she had had the night before with Polly. 
Things were as she had suspected. She had been frank in her questions, and Polly had been frank in her answers. Both had been somewhat awkward, of course. She had been made awkward by her not wishing to receive the news in too cavalier a fashion, or to seem to have connived, and Polly had been made awkward not merely because allusions of that kind always made her awkward, but also because she did not wish it to be thought that in her wise innocence she had divined the intention behind her mother's tolerance. Mrs. Mooney glanced instinctively at the little gilt clock on the mantelpiece as soon as she had become aware through her reverie that the bells of George's church had stopped ringing. It was seventeen minutes past eleven. She would have lots of time to have the matter out with Mr. Doran and then catch short twelve at Marlborough Street. She was sure she would win. To begin with, she had all the weight of social opinion on her side. She was an outraged mother. She had allowed him to live beneath her roof, assuming that he was a man of honour, and he had simply abused her hospitality. He was thirty-four or thirty-five years of age, so that youth could not be pleaded as his excuse. Nor could ignorance be his excuse, since he was a man who had seen something of the world. He had simply taken advantage of Polly's youth and inexperience. That was evident. The question was, what reparation would he make? There must be reparation made in such cases. It is all very well for the man. He can go his ways as if nothing had happened, having had his moment of pleasure. But the girl has to bear the brunt. Some mothers would be content to patch up such an affair for a sum of money. She had known cases of it, but she would not do so. For her only one reparation could make up for the loss of her daughter's honour—marriage. She counted all her cards again before sending Mary up to Mr. Doran's room to say that she wished to speak with him. She felt sure she would win. He was a serious young man, not rakish or loud-voiced like the others. If it had been Mr. Sheridan or Mr. Mead or Bantam Lyons, her task would have been much harder. She did not think he would face publicity. All the lodgers in the house knew something of the affair. Details had been invented by some. Besides, he had been employed for thirteen years in a great Catholic wine merchant's office, and publicity would mean for him, perhaps, the loss of his job. Whereas, if he agreed, all might be well. She knew he had a good screw for one thing, and she suspected he had a bit of stuff put by. Nearly the half-hour. She stood up and surveyed herself in the pier-glass. The decisive expression of her great florid face satisfied her, and she thought of some mothers she knew who could not get their daughters off their hands. Mr. Doran was very anxious indeed this Sunday morning. He had made two attempts to shave, but his hand had been so unsteady that he had been obliged to desist. Three days' reddish beard fringed his jaw, and every two or three minutes a mist gathered on his glasses, so that he had to take them off and polish them with his pocket-handkerchief. The recollection of his confession of the night before was a cause of acute pain to him. The priest had drawn out every ridiculous detail of the affair, and in the end had so magnified his sin that he was almost thankful at being afforded a loophole of reparation. The harm was done. What could he do now but marry her or run away? He could not brazen it out. The affair would be sure to be talked of, and his employer would be certain to hear of it. Dublin is such a small city. Everyone knows everyone else's business. He felt his heart leap warmly in his throat as he heard in his excited imagination old Mr. Leonard calling out in his rasping voice, "'Send Mr. Doran here, please!' 
all his long years of service gone for nothing, all his industry and diligence thrown away. As a young man he had sown his wild oats, of course. He had boasted of his free thinking and denied the existence of God to his companions in public houses. But that was all past and done with. Nearly. He still bought a copy of Reynolds' newspaper every week, but he attended to his religious duties and for nine-tenths of the year lived a regular life. He had money enough to settle down on, it was not that. But the family would look down on her. First of all there was her disreputable father, and then her mother's boarding-house was beginning to get a certain fame. He had a notion that he was being had. He could imagine his friends talking of the affair and laughing. She was a little vulgar. Sometimes she said, I seen, and if I'd have known. But what would grammar matter if he really loved her? He could not make up his mind whether to like her or despise her for what she had done. Of course he had done it too. His instinct urged him to remain free, not to marry. Once you are married you are done for, it said. While he was sitting helplessly on the side of the bed in shirt and trousers she tapped lightly on his door and entered. She told him all, that she had made a clean breast of it to her mother and that her mother would speak with him that morning. She cried and threw her arms round his neck, saying, "'Oh, Bob, Bob, what am I to do? What am I to do at all?' She would put an end to herself, she said. He comforted her feebly, telling her not to cry, that it would be all right, never fear. He felt against his shirt the agitation of her bosom. It was not altogether his fault that it had happened. He remembered well with the curious, patient memory of the celibate the first casual caresses her dress, her breath, her fingers had given him. Then, late one night, as he was undressing for bed, she had tapped at his door, timidly. She wanted to relight her candle at his, for hers had been blown out by a gust. It was her bath night. She wore a loose, open combing-jacket of printed flannel. Her white instep shone in the opening of her furry slippers and the blood glowed warmly behind her perfumed skin. From her hands and wrists, too, as she lit and steadied her candle, a faint perfume arose. On nights when he came in very late it was she who warmed up his dinner. He scarcely knew what he was eating, feeling her beside him alone at night in the sleeping house. And her thoughtfulness, if the night was any way cold or wet or windy, there was sure to be a little tumbler of punch ready for him. Perhaps they could be happy together. They used to go upstairs together on tiptoe, each with a candle, and on the third landing exchange reluctant good-nights. They used to kiss. He remembered well her eyes, the touch of her hand, and his delirium. But delirium passes. He echoed her phrase, applying it to himself. What am I to do? The instinct of the celibate warned him to hold back. But the sin was there. Even his sense of honour told him that reparation must be made for such a sin. While he was sitting with her on the side of the bed, Mary came to the door and said that the missus wanted to see him in the parlour. He stood up to put on his coat and waistcoat, more helpless than ever. When he was dressed he went over to her to comfort her. It would be all right, never fear. He left her crying on the bed and moaning softly, Oh, my God! Going down the stairs his glasses became so dimmed with moisture that he had to take them off and polish them. He longed to ascend through the roof and fly away to another country where he would never hear again of his trouble, and yet a force pushed him downstairs step by step. 
the implacable faces of his employer and of the madam stared upon his discomfiture. On the last flight of stairs he passed Jack Mooney, who was coming up from the pantry nursing two bottles of bass. They saluted coldly, and the lover's eyes rested for a second or two on a thick bulldog face and a pair of thick short arms. When he reached the foot of the staircase he glanced up and saw Jack regarding him from the door of the return room. Suddenly he remembered the night when one of the music-hall artistes, a little blonde Londoner, had made a rather free allusion to Polly. The reunion had been almost broken up on account of Jack's violence. Everyone tried to quiet him. The music-hall artiste, a little paler than usual, kept smiling and saying that there was no harm meant, but Jack kept shouting at him that if any fellow tried that sort of game on with his sister he'd bloody well put his teeth down his throat so he would. Polly sat for a little time on the side of the bed, crying. Then she dried her eyes and went over to the looking-glass. She dipped the end of the towel in the water-jug and refreshed her eyes with the cool water. She looked at herself in profile and readjusted a hairpin above her ear. Then she went back to the bed again and sat at the foot. She regarded the pillows for a long time, and the sight of them awakened in her mind secret, amiable memories. She rested the nape of her neck against the cool iron bed-rail and fell into a reverie. There was no longer any perturbation visible on her face. She waited on patiently, almost cheerfully, without alarm, her memories gradually giving place to hopes and visions of the future. Her hopes and visions were so intricate that she no longer saw the white pillows on which her gaze was fixed, or remembered that she was waiting for anything. At last she heard her mother calling. She started to her feet and ran to the banisters. "'Polly! Polly!' "'Yes, mamma. Come down, dear. Mr. Dorden wants to speak to you.' Then she remembered what she had been waiting for. End of Story 7 The Boarding House Story 8 of Dubliners This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Little Cloud Eight years before he had seen his friend off at the north wall and wished him Godspeed. Gallagher had got on. You could tell that at once by his travelled air, his well-cut tweed suit, and fearless accent. Few fellows had talents like his, and fewer still could remain unspoiled by such success. Gallagher's heart was in the right place, and he had deserved to win. It was something to have a friend like that. Little Chandler's thoughts ever since lunchtime had been of his meeting with Gallagher, of Gallagher's invitation, and of the great city, London, where Gallagher lived. He was called Little Chandler because, though he was but slightly under the average stature, he gave one the idea of being a little man. His hands were white and small. His frame was fragile, his voice was quiet, and his manners were refined. He took the greatest care of his fair silken hair and moustache, and used perfume discreetly on his handkerchief. The half-moons of his nails were perfect, and when he smiled you caught a glimpse of a row of childish white teeth. As he sat at his desk in the King's Inns he thought what changes those eight years had brought. The friend whom he had known under a shabby and necessitous guise had become a brilliant figure on the London press. He turned often from his tiresome writing to gaze out of the office window. 
The glow of a late autumn sunset covered the grass plots and walks. It cast a shower of kindly golden dust on the untidy nurses and decrepit old men who drowsed on the benches. It flickered upon all the moving figures, on the children who ran screaming along the gravel paths, and on everyone who passed through the gardens. He watched the scene and thought of life, and, as always happened when he thought of life, he became sad. A gentle melancholy took possession of him. He felt how useless it was to struggle against fortune, this being the burden of wisdom which the ages had bequeathed to him. He remembered the books of poetry upon his shelves at home. He had bought them in his bachelor days, and many an evening, as he sat in the little room off the hall, he had been tempted to take one down from the bookshelf and read out something to his wife. But shyness had always held him back, and so the books had remained on their shelves. At times he repeated lines to himself, and this consoled him. When his hour had struck he stood up and took leave of his desk and of his fellow clerks punctiliously. He emerged from under the feudal arch of the King's Inns, a neat modest figure, and walked swiftly down Henrietta Street. The golden sunset was waning, and the air had grown sharp. A horde of grimy children populated the street. They stood or ran in the roadway, or crawled up the steps before the gaping doors, or squatted like mice upon the thresholds. Little Chandler gave them no thought. He picked his way deftly through all that minute vermin-like life and under the shadow of the gaunt spectral mansions in which the old nobility of Dublin had roistered. No memory of the past touched him, for his mind was full of a present joy. He had never been in Corliss's, but he knew the value of the name. He knew that people went there after the theatre to eat oysters and drink liqueurs, and he had heard that the waiters there spoke French and German. Walking swiftly by at night he had seen cabs drawn up before the door and richly dressed ladies, escorted by cavaliers, alight and enter quickly. They wore noisy dresses and many wraps. Their faces were powdered, and they caught up their dresses when they touched earth like alarmed Atalantis. He had always passed without turning his head to look. It was his habit to walk swiftly in the street, even by day, and whenever he found himself in the city late at night he hurried on his way apprehensively and excitedly. Sometimes, however, he courted the causes of his fear. He chose the darkest and narrowest streets, and, as he walked boldly forward, the silence that was spread about his footsteps troubled him, the wandering silent figures troubled him, and at times a sound of low fugitive laughter made him tremble like a leaf. He turned to the right towards Capel Street. Ignatius Gallagher on the London Press. Who would have thought it possible eight years before? Still, now that he reviewed the past, little Chandler could remember many signs of future greatness in his friend. People used to say that Ignatius Gallagher was wild. Of course, he did mix with a rakish set of fellows at that time, drank freely and borrowed money on all sides. In the end he had got mixed up in some shady affair, some money transaction. At least that was one version of his flight. But nobody denied him talent. There was always a certain something in Ignatius Gallagher that impressed you in spite of yourself. Even when he was out at elbows and at his wit's end for money he kept up a bold face. Little Chandler remembered, and the remembrance brought a slight flush of pride to his cheek, one of Ignatius Gallagher's sayings when he was in a tight corner. 
half time now, boys, he used to say light-heartedly. Where's my considering cap? That was Ignatius Gallagher all out, and damn it, you couldn't but admire him for it. Little Chandler quickened his pace. For the first time in his life he felt himself superior to the people he passed. For the first time his soul revolted against the dull inelegance of Cable Street. There was no doubt about it. If you wanted to succeed you had to go away. You could do nothing in Dublin. As he crossed Grattan Bridge he looked down the river towards the lower quays and pitied the poor stunted houses. They seemed to him a band of tramps huddled together along the river banks, their old coats covered with dust and soot, stupefied by the panorama of sunset and waiting for the first chill of night bid them arise, shake themselves and be gone. He wondered whether he could write a poem to express his idea. Perhaps Gallagher might be able to get it into some London paper for him. Could he write something original? He was not sure what idea he wished to express, but the thought that a poetic moment had touched him took life within him like an infant hope. He stepped onward bravely. Every step brought him nearer to London, farther from his own sober inartistic life. A light began to tremble on the horizon of his mind. He was not so old, thirty-two. His temperament might be said to be just at the point of maturity. There were so many different moods and impressions that he wished to express in verse. He felt them within him. He tried to weigh his soul to see if it was a poet's soul. Melancholy was the dominant note of his temperament, he thought, but it was a melancholy tempered by recurrences of faith and resignation and simple joy. If he could give expression to it in a book of poems, Perhaps men would listen. He would never be popular, he saw that. He could not sway the crowd, but he might appeal to a little circle of kindred minds. The English critics, perhaps, would recognize him as one of the Celtic school by reason of the melancholy tone of his poems. Besides that, he would put in allusions. He began to invent sentences and phrases from the notice which his book would get. Mr. Chandler has the gift of easy and graceful verse. Wistful sadness pervades these poems. The Celtic note. It was a pity his name was not more Irish-looking. Perhaps it would be better to insert his mother's name before the surname. Thomas Malone Chandler. Or better still, T. Malone Chandler. He would speak to Gallagher about it. He pursued his reverie so ardently that he passed his street and had to turn back. As he came near Corliss's, his former agitation began to overmaster him and he halted before the door in indecision. Finally he opened the door and entered. The light and noise of the bar held him at the doorways for a few moments. He looked about him, but his sight was confused by the shining of many red and green wine-glasses. The bar seemed to him to be full of people, and he felt that the people were observing him curiously. He glanced quickly to right and left, frowning slightly to make his errand appear serious. But when his sight cleared a little he saw that nobody had turned to look at him. And there, sure enough, was Ignatius Gallagher, leaning with his back against the counter and his feet planted far apart. "'Hello, Tommy, old hero. Here you are. What's it to be? What'll you have? I'm taking whisky. Better stuff than we get across the water. Soda, Lydia, no mineral. I'm the same. Spoils the flavour. Here, garçon. Bring us two halves of malt whisky like a good fella. Well, and how have you been pulling along since I saw you last? Dear God, how old we're getting. 
Do you see any signs of ageing in me, eh? What? A little grey and thin at the top, what? Ignatius Gallagher took off his hat and displayed a large, closely cropped head. His face was heavy, pale and clean-shaven. His eyes, which were of bluish slate colour, relieved his unhealthy pallor and shone out plainly above the vivid orange tie he wore. Between these rival features his lips appeared very long and shapeless and colourless. He bent his head and felt with two sympathetic fingers the thin hair at the crown. Little Chandler shook his head as a denial. Ignatius Gallagher put on his hat again. "'It pulled you down,' he said. "'Press life. Always hurry and scurry looking for copy and sometimes not finding it. And then always have something new in your stuff. Damn proofs and printers, I say, for a few days. I'm just glad I can tell you to get back to the old country. Does a fella good, a bit of a holiday? I feel a ton better since I landed again in dear dirty Dublin. Here you are, Tommy. Water. Say when. Little Chandler allowed his whisky to be very much diluted. You don't know what's good for you, my boy, said Ignatius Gallagher. I drink mine neat. I drink very little as a rule, said little Chandler modestly. I nod half one or so when I meet any of the old crowd, that's all. Now, well, said Ignatius Gallagher cheerfully, here's to us and to old times and old acquaintance. They clinked glasses and drank the toast. I met some of the old gang today, said Ignatius Gallagher. O'Hara seems to be in a bad way. What's he doing? Nothing, said little Chandler. He's gone to the dogs. But Hogan has a good sit, hasn't he? Yes, he's in the Land Commission. I met him one night in London, and he seemed to be very flush. Poor O'Hara. Booze, I suppose. Other things, too, said little Chandler shortly. Ignatius Gallagher laughed. Tommy, he said, I see you haven't changed in Adam. You're the very same serious person that used to lecture me on Sunday mornings when I had a sore head and a four on me tongue. You'd want to knock about a bit in the world. Have you ever been anywhere, even for a trip? I've been to the Isle of Man, said little Chandler. Ignatius Gallagher laughed. <laughs> the Isle of Man, he said. Go to London or Paris. Paris for choice. It'll do you good. Have you seen Paris? I should think I have. I've knocked about there a little. And is it really so beautiful as they say? asked little Chandler. He sipped a little of his drink while Ignatius Gallagher finished his boldly. Beautiful, said Ignatius Gallagher, pausing on the word and on the flavour of his drink. It's not so beautiful, you know. Of course, it is beautiful, but it's the life of Paris. That's the thing. Ah, there's no city like Paris for gaiety, movement, excitement. Little Chandler finished his whisky and, after some trouble, succeeded in catching the barman's eye. He ordered the same again. "'I've been to the Moulin Rouge,' Ignatius Gallagher continued when the barman had removed their glasses. "'And I've been to all the Bohemian cafés. Hot stuff. Not for a pious chap like you, Tommy!' Little Chandler said nothing until the barman returned with two glasses. Then he touched his friend's glass lightly and reciprocated the former toast. He was beginning to feel somewhat disillusioned. Gallagher's accent and way of expressing himself did not please him. There was something vulgar in his friend which he had not observed before. But perhaps it was only the result of living in London amid the bustle and competition of the press. The old personal charm was still there under this new gaudy manner. And, after all, 
Gallagher had lived. He had seen the world. Little Chandler looked at his friend enviously. "'Everything in Paris is gay,' said Ignatius Gallagher. "'They believe in enjoying life. And don't you think they're right? If you want to enjoy yourself properly, you must go to Paris. And mind you, they've a great feeling for the Irish there. When they heard I was from Ireland they were ready to eat me, man.' Little Chandler took four or five sips from his glass. "'Tell me,' he said, "'is it true that Paris is so immoral, as they say?' Ignatius Gallagher made a Catholic gesture with his right arm. "'Every place is immoral,' he said. "'Of course, you do find spicy bits in Paris. Go to one of the students' balls, for instance. That's lively, if you like, when the cocottes begin to let themselves loose. You know what they are, I suppose?' "'I've heard of them,' said little Chandler. Ignatius Gallagher drank off his whisky and shook his head. "'Ah!' he said. "'You may say what you like. There's no woman like the Parisienne.' for style, for go." "'Then it is an immoral city,' said little Chandler, with timid insistence. "'I mean, compared with London or Dublin.' "'London,' said Ignatius Gallagher. "'It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. You ask Hogan, my boy. I showed him a bit about London when he was over there. He'd open your eye. I say, Tommy, don't make punch of that whisky. Liquor up.' "'No, really.' "'Oh, come on, another one won't do you any harm. What is it? The same again, I suppose. Well, all right. Francois, the same again. Will you smoke, Tommy? Ignatius Gallagher produced his cigar case. The two friends lit their cigars and puffed at them in silence until their drinks were served. I'll tell you my opinion, said Ignatius Gallagher, emerging after some time from the clouds of smoke in which he had taken refuge. It's a rum world. Talk of immorality. I've heard of cases, what I was saying, I've known them, cases of immorality." Ignatius Gallagher puffed thoughtfully at a cigar, and then, in a calm historian's tone, he proceeded to sketch for his friend some pictures of the corruption which was rife abroad. He summarised the vices of many capitals, and seemed inclined to award the palm to Berlin. Some things he could not vouch for his friends had told him, but of others he had had personal experience. He spared neither rank nor caste. He revealed many of the secrets of religious houses on the continent, and described some of the practices which were fashionable in high society, and ended by telling with details a story about an English duchess, a story which he knew to be true. Little Chandler was astonished. "'Ah, well,' said Ignatius Gallagher, "'here we are in old jog-along Dublin, where nothing is known of such things.' "'How dull you must find it,' said little Chandler, "'after all the other places you've seen.' "'Well,' said Ignatius Gallagher, "'it's a relaxation to come over here, you know. And after all, it's the old country, as they say, isn't it? You can't help having a certain feeling for it. That's human nature. But tell me something about yourself. Hogan told me you had tasted the joys of connubial bliss. Two years ago, wasn't it?' Little Chandler blushed and smiled. Yes, he said. I was married last May twelve months. I hope it's not too late in the day to offer my best wishes, said Ignatius Gallagher. I didn't know your address or I'd have done so at the time. He extended his hand, which little Chandler took. Well, Tommy, he said, I wish you and yours every joy in life, old chap, and tons of money, and may you never die till I shoot you. And that's the wish of a sincere friend 
An old friend. You know that." "'I know that,' said little Chandler. "'Any youngsters?' said Ignatius Gallagher. Little Chandler blushed again. "'We have one child,' he said. "'Son or daughter?' "'A little boy.' Ignatius Gallagher slapped his friend sonorously on the back. "'Bravo!' he said. "'I wouldn't doubt you, Tommy.' Little Chandler smiled, looked confusedly at his glass, and bit his lower lip with three childishly white front teeth. "'I hope you'll spend an evening with us,' he said, before you go back. "'My wife will be delighted to meet you. We can have a little music and—' "'Thanks awfully, old chap,' said Ignatius Gallagher. "'I'm sorry we didn't meet earlier, but I must leave tomorrow night. Tonight, perhaps?' "'I'm awfully sorry, old man. You see, I'm over here with another fella. Clever young chap he is, too, and we arranged to go to a little card party. Only for that. Oh, in that case. But who knows, said Ignatius Gallagher considerately. Next year I may take a little skip over here now that I've broken the ice. It's only a pleasure deferred. Very well, said little Chandler. The next time you come we must have an evening together. That's agreed now, isn't it? Yes, that's agreed, said Ignatius Gallagher. Next year, if I come, parole done o'er. And to clinch the bargain, said little Chandler, we'll just have one more now. Ignatius Gallagher took out a large gold watch and looked at it. Is it to be the last? he said, because, you know, I have an A.P. Oh, yes, positively, said little Chandler. Very well, then, said Ignatius Gallagher. Let us have another one as a juck on durus. That's good vernacular for a small whisky, I believe. Little Chandler ordered the drinks. The blush which had risen to his face a few moments before was establishing itself. A trifle made him blush at any time, and now he felt warm and excited. Three small whiskies had gone to his head, and Gallagher's strong cigar had confused his mind, for he was a delicate and abstinent person. The adventure of meeting Gallagher after eight years, of finding himself with Gallagher in Corliss's surrounded by lights and noise, of listening to Gallagher's stories, and of sharing for a brief space Gallagher's vagrant and triumphant life, upset the equipoise of his sensitive nature. He felt acutely the contrast between his own life and his friend's, and it seemed to him unjust. Gallagher was his inferior in birth and education. He was sure that he could do something better than his friend had ever done, or could ever do, something higher than mere tawdry journalism, if he only got the chance. What was it that stood in his way? His unfortunate timidity. He wished to vindicate himself in some way, to assert his manhood. He saw behind Gallagher's refusal of his invitation. Gallagher was only patronising him by his friendliness, just as he was patronising Ireland by his visit. The barman brought their drinks. Little Chandler pushed one glass towards his friend, and took up the other boldly. "'Who knows?' he said, as they lifted their glasses. When you come next year, I may have the pleasure of wishing long life and happiness to Mr. and Mrs. Ignatius Gallagher." Ignatius Gallagher, in the act of drinking, closed one eye expressively over the rim of his glass. When he had drunk he smacked his lips decisively, set down his glass, and said, "'No bloomin' fear of that, me boy. I'm going to have my fling first, and see a bit of life and the world before I put my head in the sack, if I ever do.' "'Some day you will.' said little Chandler calmly. 
Ignatius Gallagher turned his orange tie and slate-blue eyes full upon his friend. "'You think so?' he said. "'You'll put your head in the sack,' repeated little Chandler stoutly. "'Like everyone else, if you can find the girl.' He had slightly emphasized his tone, and he was aware that he had betrayed himself. But, though the colour had heightened in his cheek, he did not flinch from his friend's gaze. Ignatius Gallagher watched him for a few moments and then said, "'If ever it occurs, you may bet your bottom dollar there'll be no moonin' and spoonin' about it. I mean to marry money. She'll have a good fat account at the bank, or she won't do for me.' Little Chandler shook his head. "'Why, man alive!' said Ignatius Gallagher vehemently. "'Do you know what it is? I've only to say the word, and tomorrow I can have the woman and the cash. You don't believe it? <laughs> well, I know it. There are hundreds, what am I saying, thousands of rich Germans and Jews rotten with money that would only be too glad. You wait a while, me boy. See if I don't play my cards properly. When I go about a thing, I mean business. I tell you, you just wait. He tossed his glass to his mouth, finished his drink and laughed loudly. Then he looked thoughtfully before him and said in a calmer tone, But I'm in no hurry. They can wait. I don't fancy tying myself up to one woman, you know. He imitated with his mouth the act of tasting, and made a wry face. Must get a bit stale, I should think, he said. Little Chandler sat in the room off the hall, holding a child in his arms. To save money they kept no servant, but Annie's young sister Monica came for an hour or so in the morning and an hour or so in the evening to help. But Monica had gone home long ago. It was a quarter to nine. Little Chandler had come home late for tea, and, moreover, he had forgotten to bring Annie home the parcel of coffee from Bewley's. Of course she was in a bad humour, and gave him short answers. She said she would do without any tea, but when it came near the time at which the shop at the corner closed she decided to go out herself for a quarter-pound of tea and two pounds of sugar. She put the sleeping child deftly in his arms and said, "'Here, don't waken him.' A little lamp with a white china shade stood upon the table, and its light fell over a photograph which was enclosed in a frame of crumpled horn. It was Annie's photograph. Little Chandler looked at it, pausing at the thin, tight lips. She wore the pale blue summer blouse which he had brought her home as a present one Saturday. It had cost him ten and elevenpence. But what an agony of nervousness it had cost him! How he had suffered that day, waiting at the shop door until the shop was empty, standing at the counter and trying to appear at his ease, while the girl piled ladies' blouses before him, paying at the desk and forgetting to take up the odd penny of his change, being called back by the cashier, and finally striving to hide his blushes as he left the shop by examining the parcel to see if it was securely tied. When he brought the blouse home Annie kissed him and said it was very pretty and stylish. But when she heard the price she threw the blouse on the table and said it was a regular swindle to charge ten and elevenpence for it. At first she wanted to take it back, but when she tried it on she was delighted with it, especially with the make of the sleeves, and kissed him and said he was very good to think of her. Ah. He looked coldly into the eyes of the photograph, and they answered coldly. Certainly they were pretty, and the face itself was pretty, but he found something mean in it. Why was it so unconscious and ladylike? The composure of the eyes irritated him. They repelled him and defied him. There was no passion in them, no rapture. 
He thought of what Gallagher had said about rich Jewesses. Those dark oriental eyes, he thought, how full they are of passion, of voluptuous longing. Why had he married the eyes in the photograph? He caught himself up at the question and glanced nervously round the room. He found something mean in the pretty furniture which he had bought for his house on the hire system. Annie had chosen it herself and it reminded him of her. It was too prim and pretty. A dull resentment against his life awoke within him. Could he not escape from his little house? Was it too late for him to try to live bravely like Gallagher? Could he go to London? There was the furniture still to be paid for. If he could only write a book and get it published, that might open the way for him. A volume of Byron's poems lay before him on the table. He opened it cautiously with his left hand, lest he should waken the child, and began to read the first poem in the book. Hushed are the winds and still the evening gloom, not e'en a zephyr wanders through the grove, whilst I return to view my Margaret's tomb, and scatter flowers on the dust I love. He paused. He felt the rhythm of the verse about him in the room. How melancholy it was! Could he too write like that? Express the melancholy of his soul in verse? There were so many things he wanted to describe. His sensation of a few hours before on Grattan Bridge, for example. If he could get back again into that mood. The child awoke and began to cry. He turned from the page and tried to hush it, but it would not be hushed. He began to rock it to and fro in his arms, but its wailing cry grew keener. He rocked it faster while his eyes began to read the second stanza. Within this narrow cell reclines her clay, that clay where once it was useless. He couldn't read. He couldn't do anything. The wailing of the child pierced the drum of his ear. It was useless, useless. He was a prisoner for life. His arms trembled with anger, and suddenly, bending to the child's face, he shouted, Stop! The child stopped for an instant, had a spasm of fright, and began to scream. He jumped up from his chair and walked hastily up and down the room with the child in his arms. It began to sob piteously, losing its breath for four or five seconds, and then bursting out anew. The thin walls of the room echoed the sound. He tried to soothe it, but it sobbed more convulsively. He looked at the contracted and quivering face of the child and began to be alarmed. He counted seven sobs without a break between them and caught the child to his breast in fright. If it died. The door was burst open and a young woman ran in panting. What is it? What is it? she cried. The child, hearing its mother's voice, broke out into a paroxysm of sobbing. It's nothing, Annie. It's nothing. It began to cry. She flung her parcels on the floor and snatched the child from him. What have you done to him? she cried, glaring into his face. Little Chandler sustained for one moment the gaze of her eyes, and his heart closed together as they met the hatred in them. He began to stammer. Eh, it's nothing. He, he began to cry. I couldn't. I didn't do anything. What? Giving no heed to him, she began to walk up and down the room clasping the child tightly in her arms and murmuring, "'My little man, my little manny, was who frightened, love? There now, love, there now, lamb of bon, mamma's little lamb of the world, there now!' Little Chandler felt his cheeks suffused with shame, and he stood back out of the lamplight. He listened while the paroxysm of the child's sobbing grew less and less, and tears of remorse started to his eyes. End of story eight. A little cloud.